Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Adopting Zero Trust or AZT. I am Elliot, your producer, alongside Neil, your host. And today we have a guest that's going to be talking into a pretty hot topic as far as it comes down to things that people interact with on a frequent or regular basis. But, and I already told him I was going to mess up his name, Yijani, if you could kindly give us a little bit of background on yourself, you are currently, I don't know, a CISO, a founder, you have run an MSP or MSSP, which one was it? So a bit of a bow, everything. So thank you for inviting me here. I'm almost like all you can eat meal because I spent 15 years in MSSP and VAR in a company called Horjuve Group that now calls Idaris. And over there, I did installation of firewalls in the beginning, running a number of teams later on, did the pre-sales for customers, working with vendors. And when I left last year, I basically was the VP of architecture. So right now, I'm doing several things myself. I have a consulting business where I mainly work with VARs, MSSPs, and some vendors. I have a podcast with a friend, actually two podcasts right now, Security Architecture Podcast and Cyber Inspiration. We did a cybersecurity conference earlier this year called Skiing and Snowboard Cybersecurity Conference with other folks, and we do another one next year as well with Tony. And what else I'm doing? I'm writing a book, but it's separate. I'm spending a lot of time on LinkedIn. And in general, I'm very involved in the vendor community the cybersecurity vendor community. I speak with a lot of founders. I understand how stuff works because fundamentally I'm an architect as well. So this is important. And when I talk to customers, I talk to people, I always want to approach the idea of connected infrastructure, connected architecture. Love it. So I guess the that trip, the conference that you did, it wasn't just a write-off to go skiing and snowboarding with a bunch of tech folks. No, this actually was testing an idea. So mm -hmm. the idea was if we bring people that has two or more several passions, we just don't need to do anything. If any of you do scuba diving, there's a company called Maris, and they say just add water. So it's pretty much the same, just add beer and food. So we are testing in theory, testing, but we wanted to make sure this, if we bring cybersecurity people and we wanted people to communicate, have a networking event that like cyber, like skiing or snowboarding, then we don't need to do a lot. They will communicate that we don't need to think about how open the conversation, how to talk with this person, because it's very easy to say, oh, are you skiing? Are you snowboarding? And you will see what is your favorite mountain? What do you do for cyber? Everybody wearing sport jackets. There is no issue with, oh, you have a Armani suit. You're probably a very important person. And as my buddy and my co-founder for the Ski and Snowboard Conference says, it's a perfect elevator pitch. We have not very big mountains here in Toronto. So you have two minutes when you're going up and somebody can pitch you on the idea of what they do. And if you don't like them, you just say, thank you very much. And you ski a different way. Or if you like them, you can continue skiing with them or snowboarding with them. And funny enough, we saw people standing on top of the mountain and talking cyber. 
to WinUp and continue talking about cyber. The idea was to test networking. It was really great. People connected, people loved it. People enjoyed sport activity and also business. So I was just making a quip. It brings a whole new way to the term elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. Up to slow. Yeah, so I was going to poke at Neil. So he, he helps out with the, is it Texas Cyber? Texas Cyber 7. Yes, sir. There you go. So uh, maybe you can encourage them to add in a ultra marathon for us next year. And I will definitely go and show up for that. I think oh, ultra marathon is a bit hard because you're not going to do a lot of networking. You're going to be running for a long time. So maybe at sprints, then you can actually yeah. talk between them. We do a lot of the walkings, not the runnings. <laughs> so walk, walk for cyber, basically walk and talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Much. No, it's fun stuff. No, it, it's good. That's cool. Conferences are hard. Especially your own conference, uh, speaking from experience. But yeah, that's good stuff. I like it's it. It's like a lot idea. of learning. And it was for me very interesting because I did spend a lot of time with vendors. But it was the first time when I actually spent a lot of time with the marketing people from the vendor side. Because all the conversation, who would I be there? Do I get the people? How do we understand yeah. if they like it? We had a lot of communication about qualified leads for not qualified leads. And all this conversation went to brand new level on my other podcast that I spoke and some of my friends. Very cool. Well, while we're actually talking about marketing, I want to derail us before we get to actually meet in the conversation, only because I just saw a pretty wild thing on LinkedIn. So I hope you don't mind us doing that. And I already threw it up in front of you. So probably not going to do the video since no one actually watches this, which we do have this on YouTube, by the way. So you're just going to get the audio version of us like explaining the situation. Uh, maybe I'll put it in the link in the show notes too. But a doctor who works over, well, a PhD doctor, works over at a healthcare organization. You all know marketing as far as things that get sent to your inbox. For the higher-ups, you tend to get direct mail. Anyways, if you have been on the receiving end, this is a torn down piece of marketing material where basically it opens up like a greeting card and within it, it will blast some sort of video message at you. Anyways, he tore it down. And typically, you wouldn't see anything much besides like a chip and a screen and a little bit. But this version, and I will not say what company it was, because it's a very large company and pretty generally well-respected. But if you look in this, there's a LTE chip and also a SIM card in here. So absolutely freaking wild. I will say, I work in the marketing side of the house, typically. But yeah, this is a little bit weird. So for our vendors that listen, which I know isn't like the largest group out of our practitioners, Maybe encourage not sending stuff like this. How do I get um, on that mailing list? These are fun to tear apart, though, because I got them from like Salesforce and stuff like that. But yeah, that's interesting. So anyways, um, back to uh, the actual episode, um, since we've got somewhat of an expert who can cover all sorts of things. One thing that we have not covered really from the zero trust perspective is something that people interface with on a regular basis across the entire day, which is the browser that connects you or the user to the internet. I got it wrong before. It is not just secure browsers. It is now enterprise browsers, but maybe we'll hand it back off to you. You kind of give us a little bit of a rundown. What is the background and you know how is that kind of shaping up? What is the importance and relevance towards zero trust too? Definitely. I will try to do the short version because there's quite a lot of time to talk about it. Yeah, I'll but make it a long version. Sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. It started all the way probably 2008 with remote browser isolation. But you can also think about Citrix and people connecting remotely to places. But this is connecting back with remote browser isolation. The idea was if I'm browsing the internet 
and I potentially going to a bad website, I want an isolation between me and the bad stuff. So if I have a remote browser somewhere, I'm going to browse this browser will browse browse for me. Think about this as you're a technician and you need to operate and open a bomb, for example, potential bomb, you're going to operate a robot. So the robot will do the work for you. And if something happened, the robot will have a problem and not you. So you're creating a layer between you and the bad stuff. So the same idea here, if the malware going to detonate on the browser, it will happen on the remote browser. There was a number of issues with this and some interesting applications, how you can use it. And still a lot of companies in the secure web gateway space using the feature of remote browser isolation, especially on the unknown websites. So it's quite cool. Now, with the beginning, Google also, Chromium, if you're not familiar, so Google Chrome run Chromium and Edge run Chromium as well, and many other browsers, actually support isolation between tabs from 2008. So it allows you to do the separation and basically you cannot go from a tab to tab. Several years ago, probably around four or five years ago, a number of companies realized, okay, what if I create an extension or take the Chromium browser, strip it even more and build on top of it and create my own browser. And this browser will also have the traditional similar features like URL filtering, Marvel analysis, DLP, and many other things to the point that got many different features. I can also control which extensions you're going to have to install it. Why? Because extensions may change permissions and may do different things. Now, I can also figure out and say, hey, Evgeny, for you to do the work in this particular application, let's call Salesforce or AWS, you have to come from this, this browser. So now you need to authenticate to this browser and this browser potentially will do host checker to understand from which device you are coming. Do you have the latest patching, AV, whatever it is. And then before you go into the applications, you need to actually prove, and we're not going to technical details yet. We can go maybe later on to say, oh, if you're not coming from this browser, I'm not going to let you in. So I'm supporting the entire idea of the Zero Trust framework that I'm not allowing access to anyone. I only allow access, allow access to validated people from validated devices to the validated browser. So I'm adding another layer of security. And this technology potentially could be very interesting right now, not just to the internal users, but I think the first very logical application is if I need to have Elliot O'Neill do part-time work for me, do I need to give them access, browser, laptop? How do I actually do this? In many big companies, they're not going to give you access to the environment, even though you don't give you the cell VPN, they're going to actually ship your laptop. Because as a laptop with standard image with all their tools, quite expensive. In this case, I say, okay, here's a browser. You can have to use this browser. And to kind of go deeper a bit, let's say Elliot want to download some documents that he saw very cool when he was working with his customer. So I can prevent data leakage, DLP, to from, from to download the documents. Or if you download the documents, they will be encrypted. So there are several multiple kind of ideas and features that we can use here that support enterprise security, zero trust, and general hygiene. Yeah, I'm going to dive in. Elliot's, I think, still computing. So there's a lot of good little nuggets there for Elliot in my brain. 
But yeah, I think it's fun. We talk historically, so I'm going to take us back slightly. I, I remember the first, well, what did they call them back? You, you go back to 2008, 2007, we had Firefox put out a sandbox browser or whatever, which was, I think, yeah. kind of the precursor to these, the way they ended up being in 2008 later. And so I love the evolution of this because as a guy who did a lot of open source research things in less desirable locations, you know, being able to have these or have a virtualized environment or have a microcosm of what could be a virtualized browser environment just on my local box still and, you know, mitigate certain paths at risk is always good. And then moving forward a little bit, the one thing I like to talk about personally, when we think about, I love your scenario where instead of shipping someone a laptop or an ISO to install, whatever, they just tell them download this browser profile, right? And then all of your basic fundamentals for security for what they're going to access are loaded up in there, some kind of fingerprint, more or less, right? Attached to whatever their architecture is. I love that. I've actually, I think I've only seen that maybe once or twice as an option. So it's kind of fun, I think, to talk about that as an option because I don't think too many people have considered that when they do hire that contractor or they hire that third-party entity for just two weeks. Mm -hmm. Most of them are like, you either come to the office or here's the VPN and here's a giant software suite you have to download. But being able to tie that into a browser fingerprint and they control media based off of that browser fingerprint from a zero trust perspective. I think that's fun. And I don't know if Ellie wants to, but I'd love to expand on that. There's also another, I think, two catalysts that are important here. One, with digital transformation and COVID, we move more stuff to cloud, more cloud, more stuff to SaaS. It means even more stuff we now accessing via the browser right now over HTTP, HTTPS. And majority of our traffic right now is HTTPS. So it's encrypted. Guess what? For us to inspect the traffic with traditional secure web gateway and firewalls, we need to do the cell of loading or inspecting of the SSL. We're not going to go to this part right now, but it's not always possible. It's hard. It's CPU consuming. And we have this problem of what we call a certificate pinning that not, I'm not always able to open the, the certificate, but when it pushing the control and the inspection to the browser, I can actually do it before you encrypt. So there is a lot of interesting parts here as well and how it's actually going to grow. I think MDM, <laughs> I think MDM is more very important here earlier because yeah. I can use the MDM to roll the browser. So let's think about the problem and say, okay, hey, Neil, Neil here's my fancy new browser. Use it. They're like, I don't want to use right. this. Like, leave me alone. Like, no, here's my MDM. Here's you're going to use it. So you actually can force people or you can create a condition. Say, if you don't have this MDM installed on your laptop and MDM only going to be installed on corporate devices, that you cannot use the browser. And because you cannot use the browser, you cannot log into XYZ and you cannot do this work. So you can create these conditional scenarios, even if the bad guys going to get your credentials, get your MFA, they're still going to be missing this part of conditions. Yeah, I think the managed device aspect of things. Uh, I've seen a trend recently. <clears throat> so to give LA a little fluff for what he was, he was going to ask, I I've seen a trend recently where both some startups, smaller startups, you know, 20, 30, 40 people startups, and then some companies hiring consultants back to the whole point of no equipment. They've told them, take your own laptop, install our MDM solution, and then install, you know, our browser or other tools right through that solution. And one, I'll, I'll say this, I think that's, for me personally, I'm abhorred to that model. If you want me to install more than just a browser, you're going to need to give me something else other than my own equipment if it's not something I'm already working in. But like it or not, I think that's kind of 
to where we're going at the moment. That that's kind of where the trend of things is with the bring your own device policies that a lot of companies set up, especially startups, that they're expecting us to install this service and then they're expecting us to install the additional tools and collateral. But if someone told me to install just a browser from a particular build, I'd be okay with that because I'm only ever going to do work stuff from that browser. And at the end of the day, it's not some third party, you know, managing my overall box as a whole, right? There's interesting compliance aspect here that we're not still there. Because we're not going to get there. So, yeah. Elliot, you're working with the companies that do doing actually compliance stuff, okay? More or less, yeah. More, more or less. And Hopefully. it's interesting because we have compliances and we need to prove stuff. So part of the stuff we need to prove, oh, do you have an EDR on your laptop, for example, SOC 2 compliance, other compliances. Now, if I can actually say that I don't need EDR, why? Because everything I do is contained in the browser. Then Neil is going to support you, you part. I can bring my own device to do this particular work for this company. And I don't need to prove I have an EDR because I have a way to prove you everything's contained inside the browser. So let's say your device is potentially having issues, but it's supposed to be contained. Again, we're not there. We're not even close to be there. It will take time to prove it's actually right. But this could be one of the things that you can do. I like the idea. I think it's clever and especially once again, remote work. I think this is a big thing. There, there's obviously a place for enterprise. I think we can ping that in a few minutes, but being that I think all of us work remote, I know Elliot does. So when we think about the lifestyle, what that is, how do we want to mitigate risk? How do we want to mitigate cost exposure at the business level? And once again, back to what we mentioned earlier, it's far less expensive to design some kind of contained browser solution that adopts CT and some methodology as opposed to shipping someone a laptop or shipping someone additional software or requesting them to install a robust amount of security software. So on that note, when, when we think about this, so you say it's not necessarily quite there per se, where do you think today, where do you think it is from maybe a security implementation? Is it good for them to do from a remote work perspective yeah. and say, hey, you're good? Or is it, should we kind of fixate more on the end? No, I'm saying we're a long way to say, I don't need an endpoint security because I only gotcha. use a browser, you know? So I cannot really have this claim that I only do my work in the browser. This way I don't need to install my EDR or EP. Oh, because this is the only thing I'm doing and it's contained. But from there, if I use endpoint security or MDM, whatever it is to protect my laptop, the browser itself has quite a lot of capabilities and features from a variety of companies. Now I am talking about browsers, but there is also other type of vendors that say, wait a second, why do I need to install the entire browser? I like my Firefox. I like my Opera. Why do you force me to use Evgeny browser tomorrow? So there is another sliver of vendors that say, don't worry, here's an extension that you can install in the browser you like, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, whatever it is, Edge, and we'll do almost everything that the entire browser can do. There are some nuances here. So for example, one of the cool features that we spoke with several vendors is Oh, I'm looking at an important document and I did mention if I want to download the document, you're going to be encrypted. But what if I want to just take it from my phone and take a picture of this document? Then these browsers can actually do watermarking. So when you take a picture, it will have a watermark. Oh, this is Evgeny Chrome. This is today, October, blah, blah, blah. So if you take a picture and send it to someone, there's going to be a watermark of the document saying how it came. So you can protect the information like this as well. So not everything is available with the extensions, depending on the company, because you have much more control with the browser versus the extension. But 
in a big company, it's probably much easier to roll out the extension to kind of make your feet wet a bit and understand how it's working before you roll the entire browser. So let's kind of poke at it some more of that. So from a technology perspective, if we think about, you know, we've, we've got the front end, the end user, all they're going to see is I've got a browser and it lets me do things. Mm -hmm. But from a actual implementation perspective, what kind of stack are we looking at? I mean, are we looking at, I guess, how big of a tie-in to our identity access management side of the house? Is this something that we can use SAML with as well, along with the other Z, you know, zero trust type tooling? Or is it something that, you know, is more reliant on, I guess, slightly more traditional things like VPN, but maybe not VPN, right? Stuff like that, side channel comms, things of that nature. So this is a good segue. I think it's important segue as well. So majority of these browsers or extensions actually do local inspection and locking blocking. What does it mean? That you're not going to route your traffic to someone proxy in the internet for the inspection. But you still have a management somewhere in the internet to push policy and tell you what needs to be done. So this is one part. And by the way, some of them can give you remote access as well. So they can integrate SSL VPN or CTNA, what we call, inside the browser to basically give you not just access to SaaS applications, but on-prem as well. Of course, to do this, you will need to deploy something on-prem to give the connections, but I think you use already know how it's working. So you don't need to dive in to the DNA architecture, only if you guys want. This is one part. Second part, all of them definitely support IAM and single sign-on because you need to log in to the browser or to the extension to prove who you are because you want the policy to be applied for you. And the policy could be, you cannot go to hacking sites, but you can go to new sites. And this is the application that you can log in. And this is the extension you can install and stuff like that. So all of them support local users, maybe only for a very small company. And all of them are going to support Okta, Azure MFA, Google, and many others. With interesting part, that they can support the Azure MFA conditional access, Google Aware and Okta, where you can actually create the layers of conditions, what you can do before you log in. But this part is related to your IAM part, not just the browsers. They do tie to IAM. Because if I'm logging to AWS and AWS authenticate me with Google, then the Google need to have the part of Google Aware, the conditional access that it will check from which browser you're coming. So there is some parts where there's no magic, you know, you need some mechanisms that will actually do this interrogation to understand from where you're coming, what are you using? Yeah, that makes sense. In essence, you know, the enterprise browser is from a tooling perspective, it's a great extension to help one, either facilitate access controls at a, I wouldn't say granular, but at an, a level of back to the contractor pieces where they're the exceptions to the things for what's coming from a device management perspective. On the same flip side, if we tie this all back in, like on my corporate laptops, I think the last time I had a browser that was managed was obviously on the government side, and I haven't done that stuff for eight, nine years. I've worked at a couple of big companies. I've worked at a couple of small companies. The browser is just the browser. It goes wherever it wants to go. There's very little limitations, which is scary sometimes. So pushing that towards enterprise perspective, you know, thinking what this means from zero trust and just another step in securing the environment, right? So we build yeah. our profiles, we build out, you know, finance team should obviously only really be looking at finance stuff and spreadsheets probably and not necessarily Splunk type things or whatever, stuff like that. So I think it's a really cool extension of the zero trust mentality to help put the right brackets around what the corporate environment should look like for those personas. 
I, do you see this ever ballooning out of proportion from a profile perspective? Or do you see, like you mentioned with Okta, it should just kind of become an innate process, right? That seemed fair if you do the right setup? Yes, a couple of things. First of all, what's cool about the browsers is the sense that we know how to use. You know, it's a Chromium-based browser. We're going to have a different logo, but we don't need to learn and understand what's new. We just know this. And it also support the extensions we like and we use. If you use an extension for your passwords or for your Zoom, you can still use them. There was a limitation in some of the previous technologies as well. Second of all, it's if you think about the contactors, you know, we used to, okay, you, you, I'm not going to ship your laptop, but you need this VPN, that VPN. So if you're doing part-time job, you may end up with five, six, eight VPNs and each have issues with this one. In this case, you may end up with eight different browsers. Depend on the company you're working with, so it's probably going to be much easier for you. But growing and accelerating, because I'm pushing this control to the end user, that's always become an endpoint security product, if you think about this. So I'm speculating right now. I don't know, but if, if I put my analyst hat, I think the EDR EPP companies will want this to be part of the portfolios. One part. Second part, the SASE and SSE vendors that provide secure web gateways, ETNA, may also want to add this to the portfolio, even so there is a bit of a conflict of interest here because they're doing similar things in, in the case, but we just saw that Palo Alto didn't buy, but want to buy one of the vendors called Halon. The deal didn't close yet. I'm not sure where it's going to close, or maybe by this time I'm going to be here, it's going to be already closed. And I'm going to be very interesting to learn if they're going to put it under their endpoint portfolio, under the network portfolio. Yeah, I think that's fun. And fun comparison there of growth and where they could be. I, I agree. I think it's for me personally, I think it's more endpoint security because of the limitations you can apply to that persona. And obviously it's the endpoint, it's deployed down to the user, like you mentioned. So now I'm we... thinking about this, I'm going to cut you off if I may, no, I could. was just thinking about this. We have Chromium devices. Think about this. We have laptops right. that basically one gigating Chrome browser. Yeah. So what's, yeah, the, this is a, this is a phone. So what's stopping us? And there was actually companies like Blue Coat in the past, if anybody remember the company like this, were creating special packages for Chromium devices and many other companies as well. So what's stopping us to have a special device that basically run the enterprise browser version of it and give you all the URL filtering, everything you need? So we don't, when we give Chromium devices, we're not really installing endpoint security on them because the entire device is just a browser. So we assume it's, should be secure. So we have similar ideas and kind of coming back to terminal days, you know, use a terminal. <laughs> I think that's kind of fun too, though, because that, that's a cost perspective. I mean, I can go out and get a $100, $120 Chromebook right now and do not a lot of heavy things, but I can do the basics. If you need me to log into a couple of websites, poking prods and things, I can do it. But if you need me to do heavy lifting, like most enterprise companies as an engineer, they'll give you like a MacBook Pro or a, some kind of Linux build, right? A big heavy buck. But I think cost perspective, I think it's a great thing to take into account. If we do this in a Chromebook environment, we plus up that, that Chromebook a little bit. And like you mentioned, the whole thing's basically virtualized at that point and comparatively more secure out of the box than just a basic default Mac or Windows book, you know, at that point. I mean, I think that's some good fun potential impact for growth for a company. And yep. cost. If you don't mind me jumping in with my annoying marketing hat, 
I think probably one of the best use cases I could see out of a scenario like this is reducing risk in the supply chain. I work with a ton of like contractors and freelancers, but if like for my onboarding process, they have to go through background checks, security reviews and all that, it doesn't make sense to necessarily send them a piece of hardware to them. But if we want them to be able to access basically anything, that is the barrier to entry. So potentially instead of, we're not going to just do like a, a VPN either. It, you know, remote-based org that it only goes so far. So I don't know, maybe even potentially a use case in a, an enterprise browser in this scenario would be something very specifically set up where they can access things, still having to go through an IDP, something to mm -hmm. that extent, be able to access things. But, you know, that in theory would be able to reduce. Yeah, and think about uh, this right now, you know. even with all the security checks they're doing, can you actually truly tell us that they don't download any documents when they're done working with you? And don't no, take them with you. certainly not. No, you cannot. And I spent enough of my time with DLP programs in my past life. It's a program. It's not a vendor. It's not a specific. It's hard. It's not easy. It's yeah. possible, but it's not easy to do. But if I contain this to only one channel, if I contain this to only one part as a browser, and this is the only point of entry, then it's become much easier and manageable actually to do from a technology perspective. I, I'm a huge fan of the Zero Trust doc setups and, and the people that are tackling that program. Because again, government side of the house, you know, we've had that construct of some kind of Orcon originator control stuff and tying that back to the meta within the files for a very long time. Enterprise, you know, with zero trust and the whole construct is neat to see that. So then to your point, download a doc, the key pair is actually tied back to the browser and those auths are there. So when the laptop's not connected or when the browser's not connected, rather the doc's not connected and it's just a dead doc, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's very important. And especially in this world with PII and everything getting stolen, there's a reason why China has a jet fighter that looks like every one of ours. It's because they got access to someone's laptop that happened to have copies of crap on it that were not encrypted. So simple things, simple stories to solve, but doing something like this, browser-based with the key pairs already there, tie it all together, and then I can't do anything with those docs when I'm done. It's just yep. good policy management. Yeah. And then Elliot gets his supply chain risk mitigation strategy out of the way. There you go. That would be it. Again, if you all saw how long it took just to onboard like a single contractor, anything like where you can reduce that would be absolutely amazing. By the time they get approved, I'm like, ah, oh, man, found someone better. Sorry. So basically you're saying, everyone's listening right now, if you want to sell something to Elliot to onboard people faster, this is your chance, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. Especially while I'm on parental leave right now. I'm even more <laughs> helpful. I had a vendor call me earlier. I was like, mm, sorry, coming back in like two months. No, Although this is the perfect people. time. You know, vendors always give you like FWS cards, whiskey, wines. Like, Guys, I need diapers. I need cream. I need that. You're like, okay, I'm happy to have a call with you. Please make sure you have a nanny for me when I'm talking to you. Right. So, yeah, That's pay hilarious. for a nanny and I will talk to anyone right now. I'm totally on board for that. Oh, hey, horrible right there. now. You know, we're going to give ideas to vendors. <laughs> Bring it on, yeah. Salesforce. Well, so being the guy who normally doesn't put us back on track, but putting us back on track, because I'm very curious about a question that I'm in the process of trying to remember because the nanny thing got me sideways. Uh, supply chain. That's where I was going. Supply chain. So we think about this as an idea. So Ellie kind of touched on this. And I, I think, Jenny, I think this is a good thought flow too. When we think right now, most of the big corps are relatively speaking, compared to their supply chain, are relatively hardened, comparatively, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a way in, obviously, but we see 
we, I mean, we had wonderful examples with solar winds and some other things for supply chain risk and, and needing to monitor. But if we take that down a skip and we look at someone like a, a Fortune 500 company or even a Fortune 2500 company, chances are they have five, six, seven hundred plus different supply chain things going on or more even, you know, thousands in some cases, whether it's physical, digital or whatever, right? But if you have these dedicated third parties that are having to come into your solution, or if you have these partnership arrangements where it's just as simple as communicating spreadsheets, you know, that I think you as a large company owe it to yourself and the company you're working for with to provide them some kind of secure methodology beyond just the basic emails and the basic logins, right? So yes, it may mean that these vendors have 18, you know, hundred freaking browsers because maybe they're working with that many. But a lot of times you've got that lower echelon and that, that key of 600 that maybe there's out of that, maybe 10% that they're only working with you and maybe two other people, right? So if you give them this secure browser modality and say, hey, use this to want download our purchase orders or whatever they are, use this to interact and submit stuff to our doc repo this way. I think from a supply chain risk management perspective, yeah, it costs you, you know, if you're using Okta and the browser and everything, what, you know, maybe a hundred bucks a month for a mm -hmm. user, for a device, give or take, this is just me guesstimating based off of Okta experiences, but a hundred bucks a month for one net new browser that's relatively more secure, the comms line's relatively more secure versus, you know, $15 million reap because they got popped with your documents that then got exposed and then used against you, right? And don't anyway, forget. Thoughts on that. Yeah. In, so yeah, I agree with you. Also, I have control of the documents, what's going everywhere. And if I ship you a laptop, I need to collect the laptop when you're done. If I ship you a laptop, I need to make sure it has all the tools. So I need to pay for the EDRs, MDMs, VPN, also on this laptop. If I don't need to ship you a laptop, but I need to give you the VPN, I still need to pay for the VPN. So it's five, 10, 15 dollars a month, whatever it is you're using, or maybe an MDM as well, as you mentioned. So I still need to pay cost for a contractor to do work for me, even so as I may be doing two hours a month or five hours a month or whatever it is a month. And as I mentioned, and I mentioned as well, you don't really know how they work and how they control and what do they do. And to support the idea of zero trust and ZTNA, I only want them access to specific locations on not only locations, sorry, specific applications in my company to make sure, yes, you can say, but if I open an RDP and I jump from here and here, so this is a different story, but I'm supporting by definition, I'm giving you only what you need versus giving you a lot and then trying to narrow you down to understand what's happening. Yeah. And then it becomes a corporate based policy, not a business unit type idea. So whenever you have these solicitations for third party supply, whatever it is to come into your environment. You've hopefully already built out the basics and you can run it through the normal key processes at a corporate level. I see, I say all this because I see a lot of business units that they hire a third party, especially in controlled systems, right? Whether it's HVAC, fire, power, whatever, and back to some companies that have had their fish tanks hacked in prior lives. But they have these third party vendors with controlled systems, right? That they want that independent connectivity to be able to service it remotely. But the problem is they're doing it from their own already compromised solution, most likely. And that's how we end up getting these weird yeah. backdoor HVAC fish tank compromises at these companies. Here's so, another interesting twist here. If I ask, hey, Elliot, how many people are working with you part-time? You're like, oh, let me go to HR. Larry, you need to check about this part. So it's a bit become complicated. Now I'm pitting on you, you know, I'm just I'm talking about it in general in the company. 
So you're one of the few that actually know how many people working, but many companies will may not know because they may need to go back to HR or back to anywhere places or make understand that these particular laptops are classified differently in Active Directory or with the EDR, MDM, or whatever you call it. In this case, if I have a particular browser or an extension, then I, can, I just go to this uh, management of this vendor. Oh, okay. This is all the people work for me. So my asset management, my vendor contact, my, my list of people that are doing work for me in a way become easier for me as well. And it's eight for Elliot plus me. Yeah. How, that is exactly the number. That's a little weird that you know how many folks that I've got. Under me. You mean you no cats? Every time somebody, sometimes somebody reached to me and say that based on my profile on LinkedIn, I need uh, X, Y, and Z because I'm growing faster. Like it's just me, microphone and a cat. Like, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) No, I like these. So I I think this, like we started off with, this is one of the things that we haven't had a chance to really talk about. We talk about, you know, we've talked about endpoint security. We, a little bit, we've talked about server type security models a little bit. And obviously we, and in most cases, we always just come back to identity access management. What does that mean? Pick someone who does it and does it well. but I think this is fun because the browser itself, to your point earlier on, this is where everybody lives nine times out of 10. Unless you're an engineer who doesn't understand what a tab looks like and you do command line all day long, everybody, everybody has a browser somewhere and everybody's doing something with the browser. And so why are we going to only focus on those network devices that are trying to secure the inbound outbound of those com mm-hmm. when we could take it down that echelon a little bit more and endpoint security management at the end of the day, really at a much more granular level in a much more effective level, I think. So, um, I don't know, Ellie, if you got more to throw in there, that's kind of where my brain's at the moment. I'm also yeah. running on two hours of sleep. So, oh yeah, I mean, that sounds right. So I, I actually want to chime in, well, pull something maybe out of the background. So I fortunately got to uh, also chat with uh, our guest here yesterday and invite him to chat with a bunch of other kind of, I don't know, brand cyber marketing folks to chat through things. But one of the main things that I got uh, out of that conversation was that you focused on the money aspect. So I was hoping maybe we can look into that. It's not something that we typically chat Mm -hmm. about on here as far as like bringing in tools because we keep things a little more neutral in nature. So not from the vendor side, not saying that you necessarily work on an enterprise browser as a vendor, but I'm curious, like in your CISO hat and as an analyst, do you feel like that as a paid offering provides value? Like what kind of organization do you think would actually have something that this would appeal to? Because obviously they're probably using VPNs for the most part. Maybe they're using SASE or ZTNA to an extent, MDN, all these other different pieces. It does offer some consolidation, but you know, where do you feel like this would fit? Like, is this like future state, we'll see maybe more of it as it gets refined. Or do you feel like organizations are probably like, you know what, this is a big enough issue, solves enough of our issues, maybe it consolidates. Like what's your perspective there yeah. on the financial so, aspect? A couple of things. And I think, first of all, as we have put in my thesis of had, not many companies still have a calculation on how much they spend a month on a user for security tools. So if I want to hire five people, how much money I need to spend more per Evgeny, how you know, to, to actually run the EDR, inward security, MDM, vulnerability management, all you know, the public stuff I'm forgetting right now for sure. Secure web gateway, okay? So this is add to this pile. 
many medium companies don't even have secure gateway, for example, or reliable VPN or a way to conditional access. So this is probably going to be a much easier way to go for the smaller company, medium companies there. For a bigger companies, it's going to be a bit harder because you need to replace it or potentially replace the browser or potentially understand how it's going to work with your traditional secure gateway or with traditional uh, remote access. Or, okay, there's also this part where they're using something like Palo, Zscaler, Checkpoint, Netscope, iBoss, and many companies in the space, 40. I'm not just doing remote access and secure browsing. I'm also doing Cosby, Cloud Access Security Broker. I'm also connecting over API to my Dropboxes, OneDrives, and Salesforce. So I'm not replacing this part right now. So this is the part that I need to calculate the, which part I can remove and not remove. Right now, I feel the perfect use cases is the part-time contactor for people, you know, mm. basically. And the people that don't have anything mature or have still something on-prem, because this follows you. And after that, then understand and build a model on the price, do I replace or do I augment? Or I potentially take a people that are on a higher risk. So, you, know, you mentioned programmers. They are very important people because they have access to a lot of stuff they can break or the other can break. So maybe when the people need to do DevOps or other things, they're going to have study browsers or such extensions because I want to create more condition for you to access, more options to control who you go and what you do. And again, back to the conversation of if your identity got stolen somehow and now the bad guy is going and manipulating them in Active Directory, guess what? They may be not able to do it because they're missing this conditional part as a browser or the extension. Yeah, makes Should sense. It? Yeah. So I think Careful. overall in the cost perspectives, you know, it, it's a good business risk discussion, right? I think you though hit, hit kind of a fun point at the end there, when you were talking about people who are more on-prem versus currently cloud and cloud versus on-prem. I've been fortunate in the last couple of years to work with a lot of companies that are, are in the process of adopting a more cloud-based environment, right? Which I think browser type constructs that we're talking about here would fit the bill a lot for how they should go about securing that engagement and mitigating those risks. Because some of those are moving people like engineers or like internal finance type people from being on their internet and only their internet to now having to go out and do this legitimate browser type, you know, public facing internet type stuff. So I, I think that's kind of a fun key. Now, so for that being said though, iterating on the cloud versus on-prem, you know, if you were to start and focus on this a little bit more, if you were to go down this rabbit hole, uh, would you think that these more secured browser solutions should be for those who are transitioning from cloud or on-prem to cloud, or do you think someone who's already kind of committed to the cloud should be kind of your first taker for this stuff? I think both, the one that's moving and already in the cloud, because the moment you are traveling and you're outside, then you have to be protected anytime. This is why the company like SSCs, Scalers, Netscopes are pushing as well. If you just on-prem, I don't think a lot of people just on-prem, you can probably have your traditional. Also. We still have the idea of you're leaving the company and then you bring your laptop and the VPN backs and you're basically using your traditional stack. But 
I'm a bit hesitate to say is that many enterprise companies are going to stop moving everyone to such model. Yet, you know, we are talking, I think there's a use cases, but as you mentioned, if I already paying for my secure web gateway, what do I get here and where do I get here? That's why I'm thinking sub of people in company and, and countries right now. And then we'll see how the industry will shape to understand if I need both, or is it going to basically meet and become a part of something bigger? Yeah. I think it'll be a fun transition to see what happens with the companies and mergers who buy this stuff out, especially yep. Talon, what they label it. I think that'll be a good indication of where we should poke and prod next steps, right? Right. Back over to you, Mr. Elliott, giving up on time. Yep. All right. I think we're at the top of the hour. But so to ramp us up, I think just looking at pure numbers wise too, there's a heavy investment into enterprise browsers. So I'm curious to see how that does unfold. But I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of people use Chrome. This is what they're used to. And they do have like enterprise versions. So I think they somewhat align. Obviously, there are specialty versions, which are getting heavy investments and hitting unicorn status, which is uh, over a billion dollars worth mm-hmm. of value. So yeah, it, it'll just be interesting. But I'm with Neil. I think there, as per usual, will be a lot of consolidation as typically happens. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the market turns out. But that takes us to the end of today's episode. I will say one other thing. If our listeners use enterprise or secure browsers, definitely reach out. Let us know what your perspective is. Love to get a little bit more insight there too. Um, that said, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate bugging you on LinkedIn and the rest of the uh, the spots. Can you give a shout out to uh, where people can listen to your two different podcasts as well? So Security Architecture Podcast is the place to find both of the podcasts, Cyber Inspiration Role under Security Architecture. And if you find me, it's LinkedIn, Evgeny Karam. Thanks God there's not too many Evgenys on the LinkedIn, so you'll be able to find them quite easy. E-V-G-E-N-I-Y-K-H-A-R-A-M. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much again. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.